it's been a few years since I heard the true story of a church in Texas. The pastor and the others were very concerned for a couple. The husband, the husband was being very abusive to his wife. The pastor met with the couple. And each time the husband said, I know I'm wrong. And I'll change. We didn't. Eventually, the elders went to visit the couple in the home. And again, the husband agreed he needed to change. Promised he would. This happened two or three times. Finally, in frustration, the elders gathered together their thoughts. They went to the home, the rural area, walked out back by the barn with the husband in Dumba. And as they were bringing him, they said, You see what it feels like? You see what it feels like? Don't ever do this again. by no means recommending this as a way to shepherd our flock. As we look today at elders and our responsibilities, our roles, the qualifications for elders, I'm reminded that it is a tremendous responsibility with difficult, difficult situations at times. Last week, Pastor Eric introduced a series on Titus, asking the question, what is the gospel and what difference should the gospel make in our lives? He went on to show how our lives should be saturated with God's word. Now, I love that, that verse 1-1, where it says, the truth that transforms, the truth that leads to godliness. Let's look at our Bibles again and let's read in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remains in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery. Or in small nation. For an overseer, a scout steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word is taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we see in verse 5 that Paul gives two reasons for leaving Titus behind. One is to put things in order. Two is the point of elders. And, and, and probably the two kind of go together because if there's disorder, if there are things left undone, um, 
the other would be the ones who do that. There are some very practical reasons then to, to place these elders in positions, but also an urgent need to have a formal structure in the church for spiritual care of the flock. The church of Crete was a new church. They were unchurched. Everybody came from a background who didn't know God's word. When people come to Christ, whether it's in Crete back then, or whether it's now, we come to Christ, but our struggles and our trials don't stop. As elders, we deal with very, very difficult situations. Almost daily. Requires tremendous effort, work, wisdom. The young lady who's been sexually abused by her brother or by her father or by her uncle doesn't automatically change once she's trusted Christ. It requires time to heal. The lady who's filled with guilt and shame over abortion needs God's word to saturate her life in order to change. The man who's fathered several children from two or three different uh, women comes to Christ, but he still has the issues to deal with. The man struggling with homosexuality can't take two pills and be relieved of his strong sexual desires. The young woman coming out of the drug scene isn't automatically freed from her addictions. And over and over in families where people come to Christ where there's dysfunction, it seems just to be a cycle over and over that requires breaking. Divorce leaves everyone devastated. Children, husband, wife, Elders are needed. God's word is needed to shepherd the flock. And the goal, of course, isn't just that elders will be the ones who will be teaching and counseling and caring for the needs. Our goal, of course, is to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. Before we get into the qualifications today for an elder, I want us to look at the nature and the role of the elders. First, we see in verse 5 it mentions calling the elders. In verse 7 it talks about the overseer. They're the same person. You think back to the early church. The church began Jewish areas. The Jewish people had in place the organizations, the elders. They had oversight. And so it's easy to see how they would use, choose the term elder in a Jewish background church. Initially, the leadership of the church was called, was called 
others because of that background within the Jewish culture. As the church spread and moved into Gentile areas, the leadership began to be called overseers because that was a group equivalent to the Jewish elder. So the two positions are the same. The elder does emphasize the person, his maturity, his age, if you will. The charismatic also the whole thing of, of, of oversight. But the overseer speaks of what he does. The term overseer speaks of what he does. Secondly, the responsibility of the elders. Oh, there's so many. It is to begin with a company of two or three areas. One is governing. When we use the word governing or managing, ruling. First Timothy chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, which is a parallel passage, Titus says that the elder David must manage his household well, keeping his children submissive. It is to manage the house of God. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the, ruler, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 We request that we appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you. And finally in Acts 20, 28, keep watch over yourselves in the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds. Of course, when we think back into the history of the beginning of the church, prayer comes to our mind when we think back to when there was the division among the Greek widows and the Jewish widows. And what did the elders and the apostles do? They set up the deacons to serve. And the reason they did that was in order that the elders may give their time to prayer and to ministry of the word. shepherding, caring for the needs of the people, we see that the elder is called to, to govern, to manage, to pray. Of course, a key thing is teaching God's word. The Titus, which we'll look at later on, Titus 1.9, says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word that's taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. The first Timothy passage again says, able to teach. Shepherding, caring for the flock. Those are the responsibilities of the elder. The third is we look at elders and their roles. God intended that each church have a team of elders, a plurality, if you will, of elders. Acts 14, 23 says, they appointed elders for them in every church. James 5.14 says, If anyone is sick among you, call the elders. You can go on and on with verses. It's very clear that God wants there to be more than one elder leading the church. Why would God want that? Well, first of all, it brings balance to any pastor's weakness. There's always those deficits, those uh, 
there's deficiencies in, in the lives of anyone. If you pull together several men, there are both different gifts and different passions, different perspectives that bring about a more balanced view of things. Separate provides wisdom. Godly teams bring that collective wisdom together. The third, having more than one elder guards against that sometimes dictatorial or autocratic pastor. I know with all with all those stories of sometimes a pastor that that just has a tight, tight control of things. And a plurality of elders um, stops that. The fourth. Functionally, there is equality with elders. Sometimes I've seen people, as they try to draw out the structure of the church, they draw like a triangle and put the three pastor at the top. I've yet to find any passage in God's Word that says that the three pastor is at the top. There's equality among the elders. There may be different gifting, but there's equality. Usually, there's a mindset among some that the senior pastor um, was served by the other council members, and that in the sense that as he went up to get God's vision, he would go up a tree, and while he was there, that the other elders would watch his back. And I believe that's so wrong. You see, this God has called together a team of elders to give direction, to give vision, to minister, to shepherd. Fifth, elders are called by God. They are confirmed by the existing leadership. And the good news, they are confirmed or affirmed by the congregation. Acts 20, 28 says, Keep a watch over yourselves in the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The sixth and finally, as we look at the roles and the nature of the elder, elders are men. Elders are men. Our culture doesn't like it, but God's word says that elders ought to be men. In this passage today that we're looking at, it talks about the fact that if anyone's above reproach, the husband of one wife. Well, what qualifies a man to be an elder? What qualifies a man to be an elder? As we look at these qualifications, I don't want to let any of us off the hook. The qualifications, with the exception of teaching, the qualifications for an elder are the same thing for any mature Christian. Because you see, elders lead the congregation. And so, elders should be mature. So if we go through this, think about our elders, but also think about ourselves. This is not, you know, these qualifications are for all. Well, Paul gives around 15 uh, qualities in 1 Timothy chapter 3 which is a parallel passage we're not looking at today because of time. Um, and Titus gives probably 13, 15 also. In verse 6, Paul writes, If anyone is above reproach, and in verse 7 it says, regarding the overseer, again, same thing as an elder, must be above reproach. So 
some translations say blameless. The book of coach, blameless. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, certainly doesn't mean that elders are perfect. <laughs> it certainly doesn't mean that elders are without faults. It certainly doesn't mean that, that elders are flawless. I think the word communicates more integrity. Good reputation, not just in the church, but outside of the church. An elder is to live in such a way that gives no cause for Christ or for Christianity or for the church to be affected in a bad way. You think about that, it's the same thing with all of us, isn't it? We all should live lives in such a way that Christ or the church or Christianity is not given a bad name. It puts an emphasis here for the elder on his reputation. What the elders see is that public nature of the office of elder. Green Osborne, who is a Trinity Jacob of Bendis School, says blameless is more a measure of holiness and balance than of perfection. Placing the term blameless or above approach up front of the list carries big weight. It's mentioned again in verse 7 as it's beginning of the second series of of character traits. He's seeking to establish the blamelessness, reputation of an, of an elder candidate. Paul specifies three areas that should be investigated by the other council as they look at candidates. First is the area of marriage and family. Secondly is character and conduct. And third is sound doctrine. The first one, the husband of one wife, is very controversial. Does um, this, this term, husband of one wife, does it mean that an elder must be married? I would think not, because at times Paul wasn't. Titus was Titus, and Timothy, his two sisters, were not. But there are many, and I have talked with some, and argued in a good way, with some here. But that's not what this means. Secondly, another perspective is it means that men must never be remarried in the sense of Melder's wife dies. He remarries a godly woman. Some would say that this means that he couldn't be elder. I don't think that's the case. Third, must never be divorced. Acknowledge there are people who have who have, have had divorces here, and, and God gives reasons for divorce and for remarriage. But as we look at the, the role of the elder, is it wise? As we look at reputation, as we look at the various things that a divorced person should say, I don't think that this necessarily is the whole point of, of, of these wording here. Fourth, an, an impossibility would be a man who's married to more than one woman in some areas. Some, some countries, uh, you know, Muslims have more than one um, wife, and, and that would be in some cultures. 
think the key interpretation is that he is a one woman man. He is committed to his wife. He is loyal to his wife. He is passionate in love with his wife. She is the apple of his eye. And she is committed. And that he is committed to her. There is that sexual purity, if you will, in this situation. There's that sexual faithfulness, that loyalty, a good reputation, unblemished record in the area of sex and marriage. Another to be the husband of one woman, that one woman um, kind of man. Secondly, not only is he to be the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to being wild and being disobedient and being insubordinate. To move here to the family. And another good controversial um, point here. What does it mean that children believe? I looked at probably eight or ten um, different commentaries and, and um, for the most part, except for John McCarthy, it was only I think that said that, this, that the children must be believers. But this raises a lot of questions. Does this mean that an elder must have children? I think not. You may have sometimes in doing counseling and, and interacting, just like being married can, but I don't think it does away with the possibility of, of, of not having kids. And if they have kids, must the kids be old enough to understand the gospel? And, and we have seen in cases where, even here in Greenwich, where we have families that have kids that are teenagers, almost in college, and along comes another baby. Will the elder step down because of that? I think not. Do men have to wait until their children are grown? All these questions really point to the fact that we go back to those words there that were wild and, and uh, insubordinate. They represent the people, uh, children that are old enough to understand the gospel, right? An elder has children. They should be submissive to their father. There should be that respect. The message translation says, ask the question, do they respect him and stay out of trouble? You take this passage along with 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church? That's 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. And this passage here clearly seems to say that it doesn't require that an elder have children that all believe. But they both very clearly communicate that there should be that submissiveness. And I'm not saying that, that it, it doesn't require, just if you look at the passages that seem to, to lean in that direction. The elders definitely should not have children who attract the accusations of, of being insubordinate, of living a lifestyle that's, 
um, far from what God wants. The children should respect their father and not be in trouble. I, I think this kind of reflects, can be effective, uh, be shown in, in the children of uh, Eli's son. You know, go back into First uh, Samuel and you know if you remember uh, Eli's sons um, received the sacrifices. And if you remember, they began to take the sacrifices um, from the people who were giving. And you know that nothing was done. And eventually, God judged Samuel and his kids because his kids were killed in the same day. I think clearly that an elder's children must be submissive. An elder's children are not to be perfect. They'll help us. No one would have, no church would have elders, would they? Because they're not perfect kids. Well, after showing that the elder is to be blameless in his marriage and in his family, Paul then moves to show the necessity of being blameless in character, in conduct, in personal life. It says in verse, verses 7 and 8, He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, or, but be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Paul here then lays out these first five negative traits of what the other should not be, and follows up with six positive ones. Negatives, and we don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going, I want to, to I want to deal with them in in, in, in depth. The fourth is an elder is not to be arrogant. Overbearing might be a good word to use. Um, there's an arrogant self-interest in everything that that one might do. No regard for how it affects other people. A person would tend not to listen to other people because he's only concerned about himself. Secondly, an elder must not be quick-tempered. This doesn't mean that we don't get angry. We all get angry at times. This refers to a propensity toward being angry. There are people who are like walking time bombs. They're waiting to go off. God says they should not be either. Next. An elder should not be given to drunkenness, addicted to wine, a brawler. Fourth, an elder should not be violent, pugnacious. Reminds me of a dog, pugnacious, pugnacious. A fighter. God says an elder can't be pugnacious. It can't be a fighter. We all know people who are willing to fight. God says, no, no, there should not do that. Paul then moves from the negative to the positive and shows traits that others should carry. Hospitable. An elder should be hospitable. It doesn't just mean having people over, but it carries with it offering his time, offering his resources, offering anything uh, he has for people. Next is he loves what is good. He loves that intrinsically good things. 
is self-controlled. The elder should be sensible. He should be prudent. He shouldn't let the fierceness and immorality of others distract him. He should also avoid that, that immoral and the unspiritual, but also the trivial and the foolish. The last three qualities here in this, the positive end, that make up a profile for an elder, is they to be upright. Upright. Fair-dealing with everyone. An elder should be holy. This means genuine obedience to God and to His Word. And sixth, an elder should be disciplined. Disciplined. He should have full control of his emotions, his temper, his moods. If you think about an elder and his character, his conduct, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5, where it says, These shepherds of God's flock, that is under your care, watching over them, you get three knots. Not because you, because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. And secondly, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not holding it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And it finishes up there with, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that never fades away. But having finished up the character and the conduct of the elder, verse 9 takes a look at the qualifications for leadership in the area of ministry. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word that's taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The false teaching in mind, in verses 10 through 16, we'll see later on in the series, he deals with false teaching and false teachers. Paul instructs Titus to make sure that the leaders he chooses are committed to the approved doctrine of the church. He describes the doctrine uh, in, in two ways. First, he says it's trustworthy. It's trustworthy. It's reliable because it is true. And secondly, he describes it as taught. We we'll see at this point, they didn't have the New Testament. They had the gathering of the, of the teachings, and the apostles passed this down, this official teaching down. And Paul was warning Titus, don't add to your elder team an, uh, an elder who's looking at new doctrine. Well, the two purposes then for an elder to, to, to know God's word and to help sound doctrine, and one is to be able to give instruction. Holding fast to sound doctrine enables the leader to fulfill the, the whole area of exhorting and encouraging, which builds up the whole church. And when I think of the word exhort, I think of persuasion, I think of comforting people in the midst of hurt. I think of pleading with people, giving them God's word as they move towards sin. I think of encouragement. We are well encouragement to 
continue our walk with God. I think of patiently reiterating a doctrine over and over and over because God's word is very, very important. Secondly, an elder should hold to sound doctrine because he needs to be able to refute false teachers and false teaching. Correct doctrine is the only means to correct false doctrine. Sometimes today in our politically correct culture, the use of exposing false teaching or contradicting what they say um, it's not very popular today. And yet Christ warns us over and over that we're be false teachers. And we, as a church, we as elders, need to know God's word in order to refute false teaching. I love what John Calvin said. He says that our elder must have two voices. One, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. I like that. Sound doctrine is important. So very, very important. As we counsel, as we encourage, as we seek to teach people the whole of God's word, we need to know it. Unless you've been living with your head in the sand, most of you this week have heard about Rob Bell, who's a, a pastor who probably speaks to 10,000 people a week. Um, he had a, a promotional video out this week. Uh, his new book coming out. Uh, I think Rob wins. And uh, if, you, if, you, if you know Rob Bell, he's good at dancing around issues. And um, he's maybe all he's doing. He may just be building up some good uh, publicity to people buy his book. He may be solid after Monday. I think tomorrow it comes out. He may be solid as all get out. He may come out saying that he doesn't believe in hell. Or he may redefine what hell is. Or he may affirm eternal punishment, but believe that it's not experienced consciously. Or he may believe in annihilation. The idea that the unrepentant will be destroyed after a time of punishment. Or he could be an inclusivist, which believe that people outside of Christ, Buddhists, Muslims, um, Hindu, could come to Christ because of his works, but not do it consciously. So we don't know who Rob Bell is. And we'll find out more about that later on. But see, we don't have to just look at what Rob Bell says. We don't have to worry about whether just Rob Bell. We need to think about those others because we've talked about the people all around us here that say that God doesn't want you to have a new Toyota. He wants you to have a new Mercedes. God doesn't want you to be sick. See, we've got, we got false teachers all around. And we need to know God's word in order to refute. So I think of, of this, I think of Dennis Dirks, who's a dean of Talbot's uh, School of Theology, uh, where, I, where I went to, to uh, seminary. And he, he comments about the gospel, and I mentioned this in my email this, this week. He, he writes that evangelicals have sought to make faith easy. And I 
attractive to unbelievers. Does that sound familiar? The evangelists have, have sought to make it easy and attractive. He, he, he quotes J.I. Packer, Without realizing it, we have deemed the past century bettered the gospel for a substitute product. Which, though it looks similar in new points, is as a whole a decidedly different thing. He goes on to say that the sin of reference of the gospel previously was God, but now it's men. In the previous gospel, the aim was to teach people to worship God, but now it's to make people feel good. When the elder is to be blameless in his home, in his marriage, in his conduct, in his character, and as we're finishing up with here, the scriptures, he must know God's word. Someone said that he must be a lawyer husband. He must be a good dad. He must be fully committed to God's word. I call on you today as we close up to pray for the elders that we might have wisdom and insight, that we might have God's perspective. We pray for our church. Just as I said earlier, all of these qualifications are for any believer with the session of teaching. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that your word is a light for our path. We thank you, Father, that your word gives direction to our lives. We thank you, Father, that it is true.